Well, we want to welcome everyone here and want to uh, thank you for coming and then also worshiping with us and also studying God's word. We are in the midst of studying the book of Ephesians, but we have put that on hold to study our 2023 theme. And as you can see, we have a poster up here, and the artwork was done by none other than our own Carol Wallacek. And I think this is my favorite poster of all times, and it probably even the theme. It is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Pressing on toward the goal of Christ. He is our goal, Christ-likeness. And we're going to see that in our part three today. So we've started through chapter 3 of Philippians and putting this all together to get the context. And the first thing that we saw was the prerequisite, prerequisite for pressing on. And the prerequisite is you must be a believer. If you're not a believer, there's no sense even pressing on. You're not going further. What you need to uh, understand is that Christ died on the cross for your sins and the moment you place your faith in him alone, receive forgiveness and eternal life. And that's what verses one through nine specifically covered, where Paul said, all those things that I did uh, as a Jew under the law uh, and kept the law blamelessly, I count them loss because works doesn't save. I count them loss for the, the sake, the surpassing value of knowing Christ as my savior. So that's the prerequisite. Last week, we talked about the passion for pressing on. Paul, in his heart, then goes into, I want to know him. Now that I'm a believer, his goal was, I want to know him. And this is experientially and personally. It's gnosko here, referring to the experiential growing with the Lord in a deeper relationship. And he also wanted to know the power of the resurrection. Not so much the power of the resurrection when he dies, is in the grave, and will be raised from the dead. The power of the resurrection now that dwells in every believer through the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 6. Also, to the fellowship of his sufferings and the idea of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Uh, we're all called to suffering and persecution. And then finally, it says, being conformed to his death. What does that mean? That means that being conformed to Christ. This is all about being conformed to Christ. And in a word, Christ-likeness. And this is what the goal is. Now, today, we're going to study the purpose for the goal. Let's explain the goal. We'll explain that. And so it is in verses 11 through 14. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. We're going to explain what is the goal. We're going to explain what is the purpose uh, for all of this. Let's go ahead and, and read it. I will say that there is a bit of detail in this. Uh, it seems simple enough, but some of it may be a little uh, hard to interpret to know exactly what it what it's talking about. I'll explain that 
as we go. But let's go ahead and read Philippians 3, verses 11 through 14. Paul says, In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on, and there's the word, the same word, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that's found in Christ. Thank you that it's not up to our works or good deeds, for that removes no sin, and we really can't live for you without the Holy Spirit, and we only receive the Holy Spirit when we trust Christ as our Savior. When we trust in his work on the cross for ourselves, he died for us in our place, And so, Father, when we trust him as our Savior, you save us. But that's not the end. Then you grow us. You conform us to the image of Christ. You make us Christ-like. You who began a good work in us will continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we want to be a part of that. We want to cooperate with that which you're doing. And so, Father, would you teach us from these passages, would you drive home that Really, in every moment of every hour and every minute of every day, we are to be Christ-like in all of our dealings. And we'll thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we, we come to verse 11, and there's just a little bit of perhaps disagreement in this. Verse 10, he's clearly talking as a believer that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. And then he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, the first thing is, is that the majority of commentators, and I also agree with this, speak of this as the future resurrection. He had just talked about the idea of the spiritual application of the power of the resurrection, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead, the the resurrection. There are some who disagree, but most of them take it that way. But one of the difficult things is here where it says, in order that, that's okay, it's the NASB, Uh, For the most part, it's very good. But what it, it literally is, is if somehow, or if perhaps, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now that is puzzling because is Paul saying that he's just not sure whether he's gonna be part of that? Well, that's not the case. Because Paul is very certain about salvation, his salvation, and the resurrection. Throughout the New Testament, he talks about 
the certainty of the resurrection. He includes himself personally in that resurrection. So it's not a matter of he's doubting and you come and maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. That's the kind of language of individuals who believe that works save. Works save, well, maybe I'll make it, maybe my works will be good enough. But that is not what Paul is saying or doing here. By the way, there's numerous passages uh, that refer to uh, the, the, the resurrection. First Corinthians, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And there, he's not talking about the spiritual using of the power of the resurrection. He's talking about the literal resurrection that will come in the future. Well, one suggestion is, is that perhaps Paul is just saying it in such a way, it's kind of like an idiom in order for him to be very humble. And I do believe Paul was very, very humble. He was very, very humble because he said he was the least of the apostles. He said he was the least of all the saints. And he said that he was the cheapest of all sinners. So he was very, very humble. So perhaps there is this humility coming out in this expression. But there is another interpretation which I do believe is correct. And again, there are some many good commentators that understand this. And I'm going to have to work through it. It's just a little technical here. It's very possible that Paul is talking about a specific aspect of the rapture. The rapture is a resurrection for those who have died, the loved ones who have died. Their spirit is with the Lord, but their bodies will be raised at the rapture. Those who are alive will not have to experience death, but will experience the transformation of their bodies into glorified bodies. It's very possible that Paul is saying here, if by somehow I can experience the Lord's coming while I am alive instead of in the grave. Now, how do we get to that? And I don't want to take the whole time for this because I want to make a beeline for the cross. I want to make a beeline for Christ's likeness. When you look at the Greek words, you find that the word he uses for resurrection in verse 11 is a new coined word by Paul. It is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It is ex-anastasis. Now, anastasis is the regular word for resurrection. It means to sit up, stand up, literally. But what it figuratively means is to be resurrected. And of course, resurrection is always in reference to the body. The spirit goes immediately to the Lord if it's a believer, but his body remains in the grave to be anastasis, raised again. But this one is ek anastasis. It has a preposition that means out, out of. And it's the only time he uses it here in the New Testament. He says, out of the anastasis, out of the resurrection. And one would think this. One would think 
that it is the idea of, well, what's the difference in the rapture? Well, there are those who are in the grave who will rise first, as it tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Hence, the understanding of rapture. In fact, let me read that. 1 Thessalonians, in fact, why don't we all go there? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. In fact, Paul has a very practical reason for teaching this because the early church, they weren't all sure what happens to to a loved one who knows the Lord and they pass away. Will they ever see them again? And Paul explains it here with what we now also view as a great doctrinal and theological passage. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, that is a beautiful metaphor for those who are Christians and who have passed away. They're just sleeping because they will be raised again. Now, their spirit is with the Lord. About those who are asleep so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So when you go to a believer's funeral, there's hope to be given, hope to be received and embraced but you don't have that hope when you're at an unbeliever's funeral. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, revealed by the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, this is the rapture, he could come while we're alive, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They'll get to go first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, reiterated again. But then imagine if you were one of the ones who were alive, if you're alive during the rapture, how thrilling that would be, though it would happen in a twinkling of an eye. It's not like one person said, well, I'm going to grab a sinner in one hand and grab a sinner in the other, and on the way up, I'm going to say, are you going to believe or am I going to let you go? (laughs) Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And that's one way of explaining this out Resurrection, And actually, if you're looking at it at the Greek, there's, there's two prepositions of ek. It's the out-resurrection, out of the dead. So it's emphatic. So something is here. And, and men like S. Lewis Johnson, the Greek scholar, John Wolver, Ryrie, MacArthur, all take this as a reference to the resurrection which accompanies the rapture of the church. And S. Lewis Johnson writes, there are several factors that seem to demand that Paul is referring to the rapture of the church. That aspect of the first resurrection, which has to do with the living, the living at the time of Christ's return. Now, there are other interpretations, but I think this one fits with the Greek here very, very well. So, Paul is saying 
So I want to know Christ. I want to be conformed to Christ, conformed to his death, so that if perhaps when the Lord comes, I will attain to the resurrection of the dead while being alive. So what's the point here? What's, why does he say this? And it, it almost does seem a little striking why he would put this in the middle of his context. But this is the point. And it's going to be made very well in verses 12 through 14. That Paul is saying, we strive for Christ likeness, to know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. We strive to, to live in Christ likeness until he comes back for us. And Paul will also summarize this. There's something that we need to do now as a goal, and then we're going to see the result of that goal, and we're going to see the prize and the upward call of that goal. So it does fit together. And by the way, even though we come to these, we come to these difficult passages, it's always number one. We know that this is God's word, that it is truth, and that there's no contradiction in it. Okay, we know that. So any theory that puts, tries to figure this out with an unbiblical view, you're wrong. You're wrong. And then number two, it's, it's a matter of, well, it can't be this view because it doesn't fit with Bible doctrine. And many times it just comes down to, well, then it has to be this. This must be what he's talking about. But in any way, we'll see how it fits together Let's pick it up in verse 12. And by the way, as we're looking at this, verse 11 is the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12 is, he has not attained Christ's likeness, verse 12. Verse 13 is the admonition to reach forward for Christ's likeness, to forget what lies behind and to reach forward for Christ's likeness. And then verse 14, our theme verse Press on toward Christ's likeness, the likeness of Christ, or press on toward the goal of Christ. What does Christ's likeness mean? It means Christ. It means we are living out Christ. Now, verse 12, let's pick it up. Very, very important here. This verse contradicts the doctrine of sinless perfection. There are churches that believe you can be sinless in this life. Well, I'm going to tell you, if the Apostle Paul didn't achieve it, there's no way I'm buying that anybody else could. And he's going to explain it, and we're going to see a little bit of that. But the main thing that he's going to say is, look, I haven't obtained it, but I press on. That's the idea of what we're seeing here. So look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. One of the things that we see here is, however you interpret verse 11, you must see that verse 12 is a continuation of his previous thought. The one of that I may know him and being conformed to his death. He's back to that now. This is, this is what he wants. This is what he's pressing on to. But this is, is not what he attained to. Because 
no one can attain sinless perfection in this life because we struggle with our sinful nature. But when we get to heaven, no more of the sinful nature. That's when we will attain perfection in Christ. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. So he's resumed this. So now it says, not that I have already obtained. So as Paul's writing this, he's been a Christian quite a while. He's written numerous letters. He's in prison for the sake of Christ. Uh, although you would know it in the book of Philippians unless you see the word imprisonment there because it's a very joyous epistle. And so here's Paul in his great maturity, Christ-likeness, saying rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, and he's in prison. You're saying, well, Paul, you must have attained a Christ-likeness. And here's his humility, not that I have already obtained it. And the word obtain is fine, it's good, it's lombano, but it, it has the idea here of grasping. I'm, I'm going after it. And by the way, we're using, or he is using, the illustration of a runner, preferably a sprinter, where Hebrews talks about a long-distance runner. This is a sprinter who is with every muscle, straining, striving to grasp the finish line so that he might attain and win the prize, get the prize, the upward call. And so it's the idea of grasping. Now, he says here, almost in the same thing or have already become perfect. But what I appreciate about this is that this is in the perfect tense. If Paul wanted to let you know that he is, has not attained perfection in the past, nor is he obtaining perfection now, that's how you do it with the perfect tense. It's, it basically would be, I have not obtain perfection, and continue to not obtain it. Okay, so it's very, very clear. So it's very interesting. So those individuals who believe that you can obtain sinless perfection in this life, it is a gross, a gross misunderstanding of Paul's teaching. And it's also a gross misunderstanding of sin. One of the ways that they do it is they change the definition of sin. You know, if it's not premeditated sin, that type of thing, well, then it's not really sin. And, and you know, uh, sin is sin, uh, whether it's premeditated or not. And that's the thing about our sinful nature. Our sinful nature doesn't have to premeditate. Our sinful nature just responds in sinfulness. It's through and through in our sinful nature. We're sinful. And it's only by coming to Christ, by having a new nature, by having the power of the Holy Spirit that restrains the sinful nature and yields to the new nature. So this idea of sinless perfection, he is debunking that right here. Now, in that word perfect here, he means absolute perfection. There's other times when this word teleos is used in the scriptures where it doesn't mean perfection, but it means maturity, completeness up to a level. But here, especially the way that he uses it with the Greek tense, he is saying, I have not and in the past and I am not in the present. Perfect. He makes it very, very clear. 
But he has the word but there. But there's a contrast. And the contrast is, but this is what I do. I press on. And here's that word. It's used here in verse 12, and it's also used in verse 14. And it is dioko. And it means to, to stretch and strain. It reminds you of a sprinter who is sprinting and with every muscle trying to get to the end. And you know, at the very end, the, every sprinter just thrusts himself out to cross that line. Now, I did some reading on that a little while ago, and um, some have maintained that you really don't have to do that for your speed or to be first. And yet, I, I, have remember, I remember seeing some film of individuals that they were toe-to-toe. And the one who stretched out was the one who uh, won. So that's the idea here. This is what I'm going to do. I press on. Well, what are you pressing on to, Paul? And by the way, this is continuous. This is continuous. I'm going to continuously do it. Uh, I haven't in the past and I'm not perfect, but I'm going to continue to do this. And, and you're saying to yourself, what is it that you're going to do? What is it that you're going to, to press on for? Well, I'm going to say it in a word, Christ-likeness. Now, let me show you. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold. And this, it, it's very interesting because this is even more emphatic than before. It's the idea where uh, he, he's going to lay hold of it. And, and then when we see Christ laying hold, that's even more emphatic. Uh, it's the idea that uh, it's, a, it's a grasping and a seizing, if you will. Well, what is it that he, he's trying to lay hold of? What is it that Christ laid hold of him for? It is indeed Christ-likeness. We see many passages in the scripture where we are told to be complete in Christ. Christ is being formed in us. We're told that we're being conformed to Christ. Now, I understand that it's kind of a general thing. But if you were to sum it up in in one word, what's the Christian life about? What is sanctification about? If you were to sum it up in one word, one beautiful word, it's Christ and Christ likeness. And we'll look at some of those verses that he uses to show that. One of those, of course, is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. In fact, let's go ahead and at least go there. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And I want to add verse 28 before we read 29. Now, I'm going to read this now, make a comment now. But next week, we have one more in our series, and it's going to be called The Practice of Pressing On. It's going to be very practical. And this verse is going to be one of the main texts of how we understand Christ's likeness for the believer, conforming him to Christ with everything that happens in your life. He says, and we know that God causes all things, not some, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined what? To become conformed to the image of his son. So he's working all things in your life of which he predestined that you as a believer would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal, Christ-likeness. One writes, Christ chose Paul for the ultimate purpose of conforming Paul to his glorious image. And that is the very goal Paul pursued to attain. So you see now he's talking about the end, which we'll talk about the end, the result of it, the prize of it. But until that, right now, we are pressing on. We are trying to lay hold and and grasping a hold of what Christ laid hold of for Paul. Now, the question is, well, did he just do it for Paul? Was this because Paul was, in fact, an apostle, and it was just the apostles? No, this is for every believer. When he says he laid hold of Christ, uh, he's trying to lay hold of Christ because this is what Christ laid hold of him for. It's for every believer. When you come to Christ, this is what he laid hold of you for, to become more like himself. Now, there's a lot of detail in explaining that, and hopefully I can do that next week. But this, this is the end goal, and this is what we ought to strive for as sprinters using every muscle to cross the finish line. Now, verse 13, he's going to talk about a principle that he uses of forgetting what's behind and reaching what is ahead. He says, brethren, and he he reiterates it, I do not regard, or you could say, I do not consider, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. And by the word, by the way, the word yet is not there in the Greek. It could just be, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. And if you're talking about this life, he will never lay hold of it. We will never lay hold of it. But we are to press on as if we could. We are to press on as if we could. We are to abound more and more in this pursuit. But he says, one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, it's very interesting because he says, one thing I do. But this one thing entails two actions, forgetting and reaching. So after he says he has not laid hold of it, uh, and again, uh, the idea here of laid hold, he uses the perfect tense again. I have not in the past laid hold of it, and I'm continuing to not lay hold of it, okay? So he reiterates that there's no such doctrine as sinless perfection that is biblical. But he says, this one thing I do, and just in case anybody says, well, that's a contradiction. He says one thing, and he says two things. No, one thing he does can have two actions, all right? It can have two. It's to forget one thing, and to reach for another. So he says, all right, I'm going to forget what lies behind. Now, what is it that Paul is talking about? What is it that he 
forgets that lies behind. Well, it can be several things. It can actually be even his achievements that he mentioned earlier. It can be all these achievements that he did of the works and deeds of the flesh he did and the the works that he did in order to gain salvation. He's forgetting all of that for the sake of Christ. But it can also be even failures and sin. I'm going to forget that. Now, of course, you don't forget it unless you've confessed it. If you have unconfessed sin and you forget it, the Lord will be dealing in your life so that you would recognize that you sin and you do confess it. You need to make it right. You need to make those things right. But what do you do with after you make it right? What do you do after you've made it right? He wants you to go on. He wants you to focus on the goal, on the purpose, what God is doing. God is not stopping the whole process because you've sinned. And you could sin in your thoughts. You could sin in your words. You could sin in your deeds. You could sin enough from your house to church to send you to hell, R.C. Sproul said. And so this is the idea of it, but you confess it. And when you confess it, then you can let it go. Now, also, too, I'm thinking of 1 John 1, 9. This is the instruction for believers. If we confess our sins, this is after we're believers. This is not a verse that you show someone to bring them to salvation. It's not a matter of, of confessing every sin, and that's, you know, it's not like that's a work. Uh, confessing every sin, oh, forgot a sin, I'm going to hell now. No, you placing your faith in Christ who died on the cross, took all of your sin, past, present, future, the ones I don't even know about, he died for them in my place, and I'm trusting him as my savior and sacrifice. That is salvation. Well, what happens if you sin after that? Well, he says, if we confess our sin, simply means, homologeo, say the same thing. You're right, Lord. I, I sinned here. It says we shouldn't, we shouldn't sin like this, and I sinned here. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, just quickly, we don't lose our salvation if we sin as a believer. And we can sin in in a very uh, light way. I'm not talking about major sin, but even in a light way, any thought, bitterness, bad attitude, unloving, impatient, boom, you cross the line. But all of that is paid for already by Christ. But in my life, as I want to know Christ and have a deep relationship with Christ, one of the ways I continue to do that is with confessed sin. And then what do you do after you confess that sin? You forget it. You forget it, put it under the blood. And you go back on God's easel to becoming more like Christ. That is what Paul is doing. And we don't know exactly what he was putting behind, but it could have been those achievements he mentioned. It could be sin, uh, all the apostles' sin, although when they write, when they wrote, and when they preached, it was infallible. And we have the idea here, though, that what what would he also forget? Well, it would have been sin. He might have, would have confessed that. But even achievements, even achievements after a believer. Well, I've done this, and I've done that. And we're just focusing on that. There was a, an illustration I read about a famous painter who was under the tutelage of a even greater painter. And one day, this younger painter painted a, just a, an exquisite painting. And 
Instead of picking up the brush, he would come in every day and view this painting and marvel how good it was. And finally, one day he came in and the painting was gone because his tutor said, it's not perfect, but you go and you make one that's perfect. In other words, don't be debilitated. Don't be uh, distracted by even the good things that are done as a believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you want to achieve. And there is a sense, understand, there is a sense here where it's more important who you are than what you do. Now, don't get me wrong. I like to preach about what we should do. And we ought to do a lot. But it's more important who we are, Christ-like, than what we do. Because imagine if what we're doing, but we're not doing it in a Christ-like way. You're not helping the situation. If you're doing something for God, but you're not doing it with the right heart attitude, it's not doing you any benefit. If you're doing something for the Lord, but you're not doing it in the right way, and, and you're offending people in the meantime, you're not helping the situation. It's more important who you are than what you do. And, and, and there, I would temper that. I understand how important it is what you do. But I feel this way. I believe if you concentrate on Christ-likeness, you will do the right things. It will come naturally. But even those, I believe, you are to put aside and not contemplate it. One writes, believers cannot live on past victories, nor should they be debilitated by guilt of past sins. Now, this doesn't mean you don't deal with the sin. This doesn't mean that you're not serious about the sin. Oh, that's okay, I sinned. He, wink, wink, he forgives me. No, you, you put yourself back on the easel and you do the second part of this one thing, which is what? Reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, once again, this is just, this is just filled with uh, illustration. And again, we're, we're thinking of the sprinter here. The word for reaching forward is also emphatic. And here it means to strain and stretch. Here really is the idea of the sprinter at the finishing line stretching. Well, that's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul did his entire life. But Paul, you're not going to reach it. Why are you doing that? Because this is what he laid hold of me for. This is what he called us to. This is what he's doing in me, and I'm going to cooperate, and I'm going to cooperate in such a way that with the same passion, unfortunately, that he went after Christians, it's that same passion that he's going to go after Christ, Christ-likeness. And it's to stretch and to strain. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. And what would this be? Well, I think the context is just demanding that it has to be Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. And he's reaching for this. Now, he's not attained perfection, nor would he ever attain it in this life. But he continuously, and that's what he, we see. The, we see the present tense in these, and he's doing it, and he's continuous. He's continually stretching forward, continually stretching forward. This, isn't that interesting? You know, don't you just love it sometimes when you're talking to other believers and you see how on fire for the Lord they are, how passionate it is they are to grow in the Lord. You know how passion 
how, how great it is to see them passionate to learn things from the word of God. That's what Paul was in every aspect. And then we come to verse 14, which I think is a summary of it all. And that's why it was chosen to be our theme this year. It was the summary of it all, but it also included the end result. So we see the goal now and the attainment at the end. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let's work through this. By the way, the word press on is the same Greek word for pressing on, and it's a present active indicative. I'm going to continually keep pressing on. Of course, everything is consistent here with this context. And by the way, you could say, well, well, maybe he's pressing on towards the end goal. Well, that's fine, but he's doing the pressing on now in this life. That's fine to look at the end goal. The end goal is what we're pressing towards, which is Christ-likeness, perfection, but right now we're pressing on towards it in this life. That would be very wrong if we were to say, well, someday I'm going to be like Christ, so I don't need to be like Christ. So it's a summary of it. It's pressing on, and he says, I'm pressing on toward the goal. So what is the goal? Well, I think we can break this up here. We have the goal, we have the prize, and we have the upward call. The goal would be Christ-likeness here and now. He's pressing on towards it. One writes this, for Christ-likeness in Christian living. Uh, you're, You're pressing on to be like Christ in Christian living. And a summary, Paul uses the analogy of a runner to describe the Christian spiritual growth. The believer has not reached his goal of Christ-likeness, but like the runner in a race, he must continue to pursue it. This is the goal for every believer, and it's also clear from other scriptures. And one of the scriptures that is given is Romans 8, 29, the one that we, we read. For those whom he foreknew. So you're thinking of God who knows the beginning from the end because he determines the beginning from the end. Those whom he foreknew, talking about believers, he also predestined. And here's here's the deal. You could say, I want to know what God's will is for me. Young people, you're asking to know, I want to know God's will for me in the future. Well, I'm going to answer that. The goal for you, the will of God for you, is to be Christ-like in whatever you do, in whatever occupation you pursue. You are to be Christ-like in it. It's more important who you are than what you do. Paul uses the analogy of the runner to describe the Christian spiritual growth. So it's that idea of continuing on. But I want to bring in another thought here. It's not just for me, and it's not just for you. It's Christ-likeness in ministry. When we think of ministry then, what is it that we're doing? What's the essential goal of what we do here at Grace Bible Church? is to help others be conformed to the image of Christ. Whether it's the little children back there, they're being taught the word of God, and ultimately they're being taught what they should believe and how they should behave, and that behavior as believers is Christ-like. 
any of the Bible studies, the men's Bible study, the ladies' Bible study. That's the end goal. Your end goal is to to help mature and bring out Christ-like character. For any other ministry that we have here, uh, that's what it is. Now, it may be different ministries. There may be a ministry on the 4th of July, which is filled with fireworks and stuff like that. But let the fireworks symbolize the attainment of the Christ-like character in the end. One writes, pursuing Christ-likeness here and now until we are made like him in glory defines the progress of the Christian life and the target of ministry. It's the target of ministry. Now, you could go to the scriptures and you could say, well, aren't there some sub-points? And yes, like keep, keep false teaching out, be on guard, yes. But the, the overall summary of it is Christ, Christ-likeness. Well, I press on toward the goal for the prize, If the goal is Christ-likeness here and now, what is the prize? The prize is Christ-likeness in perfection in heaven. That's the prize. You know, we we talk about heaven and we talk about the rapture. and, And, you know, even so come, Lord Jesus. I've heard more people say that in recent years than ever before because of the way things are, and that's fine. Whatever gives us a a reason to want to go to be with the Lord, and of course it's because we love him and we do want to be with him, but it also is to be rid of our sin, our sinful nature, and to be Christ-like. Well, that's, that's, that's going to be interesting, isn't it? It's going to be interesting for us, and it's going to be interesting for others. That's what the prize is. Now, the prize in this Greek word, it was the award given to the victor in the Olympian Games, which in many cases was a Stephanus, was just a floral wreath that goes on the head. Symbolism is everything, I suppose. Not getting anything gold or gold medals or anything like that or any money or anything, but it was was the prize of it and it was valued. But here, our Stephanus, the ultimate goal, is Christ-likeness. And by the way, there will be crowns in heaven too uh, in order to beautify the bride of Christ and set before him. So though we have not obtained it in this life, we will obtain it in heaven. But what do you think we do until then? We pursue it. We press on. We press on like that sprinter that's very close to the finish line. And then if the goal is Christ-likeness here and now, and the prize is Christ-likeness in heaven, what is the upward call? Well, it's the upward call of God. It's when we are called home. That's when we receive this prize, if you want to call. We didn't really earn it. He saved us. He's sanctifying us. He's the one who's working this in. He helps us work it out. If there's any Christ-likeness now, it really goes, the credit goes to him. But ultimately, we will be made Christ-like in heaven. It's the upward call. He calls us home. Now, that could be if we pass away in this life before the rapture. We've 
We've had a number of funerals where believers um, have passed on. Well, their, their soul and their spirit is in, in heaven. As a believer, that's what it is. They're waiting for the rapture, which is a resurrection, and their bodies will be resurrected. But those who are alive will be caught up alive. I'm sure it'll be in a twinkling of an eye. I'm sure one moment we're here and one minute they're, we're there. It's, it's not like a, I, don't, I doubt it's like a slow, you know, blimp kind of a floating, you know, and you're looking down and say, that's where I used to hunt over there. See that? wonder if there's hunting in heaven. And then boom, it's all over. You're not even thinking about hunting anymore. It's the heavenly call that God is calling us homeward. And notice, if you will, it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's that phrase now, the one that's in and all over Ephesians, in Christ Jesus. Only believers are getting called up. There's another place for unbelievers that's in the Bible. That is an eternity away from the Lord forever. So instead of, I want to know him, experiencing his power, becoming more like Christ, none of that is offered to the unbeliever but an eternity in hell. You know what? That is sad. We need to be a little more serious about our evangelism. We need to be Christ-like in our evangelism. That's when we will attain the prize. If we are in Christ and you are in Christ, if you believe that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins, took your punishment, and you trust him, faith alone, I trust you, Lord Jesus I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. At that moment, you are forgiven and you are given eternal life. Now, I want to maybe just make some observations here with what little time I have left. Three observations in this. Christ-likeness in honesty, Christ-likeness in sanctification, and Christ-likeness in ministry. What do I mean by Christ's likeness in honesty? Paul was very honest, wasn't he? Not that I have obtained. He wasn't going around toting the, the, the idea that he was Christ-like in perfection. The race toward Christ's likeness begins with a sense of honesty and even dissatisfaction. Of not only understanding that we have not obtained perfection but also knowing in what particular areas that we need the most help spiritually. There's got to be an honesty. First of all, we've got to realize we haven't arrived. And as we realize we haven't arrived, you know, one of the things that's very practical in Christ-likeness, you say, well, I'm not really sure what do you mean by Christ-likeness, although I'm sure you're not saying that. But the first thing you could do is look at your behavior. And very easily there are times when you go, well, that wasn't Christ-like. Well, that wasn't Christ-like. So there has to be an honesty about it. There has to be even a recognition, and I say even a confession, when we are not Christ-like, when we are not loving as we ought to be. And so um, we, this is what causes us to press on, just like Paul, that we haven't attained it, but we're going to strive for it as if we can. And, of course, we are being helped daily in this. 
Well, what about Christ-likeness and sanctification? Ah, this is a good one. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 2. I want to read verse 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. There it is, the attainment, perfection, because we will see him just as he is. So here it is, we must first know Christ, and then like Paul, we must know him in a deeper way, even knowing the power of his resurrection. We must do that now, but we must know Christ and his attributes and those attributes that we can emulate. We certainly can't emulate eternality. We can't emulate omniscience, omnipresence. Unless you're a mother, you have omniscience and omnipresence. Your mom always knows. I don't understand that. But the things that we can, righteousness, holy, and we'll talk about these next week in the practice of pressing on. These are the things that we're looking at, and someday we're going to be like that. And we're mulling this over in our life, and what it does is it causes us a desire to want to be more like Christ. The more you see Christ and the more you understand how glorious his attributes are, the more you're falling in love with him, the more you're adoring him, the more you're wanting to be just like him because you don't want to do anything that displeases him. And then, not only is it giving us a desire, but it, in fact, is helping to purify us. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, as I'm thinking about this, and I know that when we see him, we're going to be like him. And right now, when you see that, you also know how much we're not like him. And we're, we're doing the work and doing the process here. It, it purifies us. It gives us that desire. You know, you get into that situation, you say, oh, I just wish I would have obeyed the Lord there. I tried to control myself, but I couldn't. I tried to control my words, and I couldn't. I tried to control my actions, and I couldn't. How am I going to get over this hump? Well, one of the ways is that be in adoration of Christ and his attributes and be pursuing it. And at some point, you may say, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to act like that because I want to be Christ-like. That's one of the ways in which this purifies us. Again, Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Then what? Then you will be perfect. But until then, keep going on. You know, years ago, there was a little button that said, Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. We could resurrect that button. That's not a bad idea. And then finally, there is Christ-likeness in ministry. So we're thinking of that. And so we're thinking of what did Paul do? Yes, he wanted to know Christ. He wanted those things of Christ-likeness. What about for the people he ministered to? Of course he wanted it for them. He writes it in numerous passages. 2 Corinthians, the purpose that you be made complete. 
Complete in what? Complete in Christ-likeness. In Colossians 1.28, to present every man complete in Christ. What do you mean complete? Complete Christ-likeness. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. Well, what's being complete? completed, Paul? It's the idea that Christ is being formed in you. God is working outside of you externally and inside of you through the Holy Spirit. And the teaching of Paul and the direction of Paul was to bring that again. How about the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4.13, that we owe the whole body of Christ is to attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Again, pursuing Christ's likeness here and now until we are made like him in glory defines the progress of the Christian life and the target of ministry. I trust that this is your passion too. I trust that there's a passion being increasing in your soul to be more like Christ in all things. Next week, as I said, we'll talk about the practice of pressing on. Maybe we can make this more practical. We'll, we'll talk about the biblical scripture that talks about some of Christ's attributes. And then how do we act when the things in our life happen to us? How do we react? The disappointments, the failures, the rejections, Christ-like. And we'll take a look at Christ. Join us next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're the one who planned all this. And what a glorious plan it is that sinners such as us could be saved by placing our faith alone in Christ and then the goal for us here and now would to be Christ-like and then the day that we will be Christ-like in heaven. Father, this in itself motivates us, but help us because, Lord, it is easier than, it's easier said than done. It is a challenge. It is a fight. It is a, a something that we must strain and struggle, especially in difficult situations, Lord, when the flesh is crying out. Lord, help us. Help us to be Christ-like. Help us to uh, live Christ, that people see Christ and want to know him. Help us to live Christ so that people want to grow in him. Help us to live Christ-like so that we please you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.